All righty. Let's, let's get going. If we can get going. Nodes. I need a good, I need a new morning. All right, there we go. All right, so we're, we're, we're still talking about, and I know that this is like part five of you're doing it wrong, but, but it really is a point in history where everybody is chafing against everybody else going, oh, I've got a better idea. Oh, I've got a better idea. Ooh. So where did we stop last time? 1836, Texas declares its independence, right? And you know this is the way Texas views this. That's <laughs> <laughs> not <laughs> 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 state in the Republic of Mexico, right? And it looks like this. This is the shape of Texas, which is not the sort of thing that you'd go, yeah, recognizable. It looks like a lime. Um, Mexico itself is, is going undergoing a lot of different changes. They gain their independence from Spain, so Mexico, like Brazil, goes, we're going to be an empire. The empire of Mexico, which lasts like two years. Not even quite two years, and then fizzles. So not the empire of Mexico. But then they created the Republic of Mexico in 1823, and they wrote a constitution in 1824 saying all the different states in Mexico have sovereignty, you've got a lot of freedom, each part is, is just part of a, of a loose confederation, and everybody liked that. Um, a, a bunch of American settlers say, oh, that sounds good, I like this. It's all pro-landowner, pro-states' uh, rights and sovereignty, kind of get to do whatever you want. How about we just move to Mexico? You know, I, there's, remember at this time, there's still not a strong sense of union in the United States. I mean, we're, we're not that far removed from the fact that you know, uh, Calhoun and Clay are still saying things like, do this or the state will secede. Let us take Cherokee land or else Georgia will secede. I mean, there isn't this strong sense of union. When we think of the United States, you tend to picture the United States. Back then, most people, when they thought of the United States, they thought Virginia, which is part of a larger country. They thought New York, which is part of a larger country. And they said that, like, these United States is the United States. Very good point. We think of the United States as a unit. They think of these United States as a confederation of our states. Excellent point. So, um, a lot of Americans started flooding in there and saying, oh, this is great. But in 1833, a new president named Santa Ana took over and decided to centralize all the government in, 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 uh, in, in Mexico City. So he, he basically tossed out the 1824 Constitution and said, it's going to be very top-down, very government-dominating. States will not have their individual rights like they have had. And a lot of the states balked at that, saying, whoa, no, the whole reason we liked this was because that, especially all the Texians, because that's what they were called, not, not Texans. Texians at this point. So all the Texians are like, no! Pardon me? Okay. All the Texians at this point are like, no! That's why I came to Texas in the first place. So, gotta remember that when they're in the process of declaring that their independence or chafing with this, the Texians disagreed as to whether they wanted to be independent or whether they just wanted to return to the Constitution of 1824. Oh, I'll take up arms, I'll be snarky, I'll do different things, but am I saying we don't want to be part of Mexico? Or do we want to say we want to be part of 1824 Mexico? Which is why, have you ever seen the, the flag that waved over the Alamo? What did it look like? 
They look like this. 1824. Because we want to return to the 1824 Constitution. It's the Mexican flag. We're fine with being part of Mexico. We want to be part of the 1824 Constitution. There's at least a strong chunk of the Texians. That's what they're doing. Anyway. Um, eventually, especially as more and more Americans came to support the Texians, it became more and more, we want independence. We don't want to be Mexican anymore. And soon you got people like Davy Crockett bringing his Tennessee militia over. You got all sorts of people uh, taking over old Mexican garrisons, preparing to fight. Uh, they officially declared their independence in 1836, and then they clarified what they mean by Texas, which is not the same thing as the line anymore, right? This is the shape of Texas. And the Mexico said, no, it isn't. That is so not the shape of Texas. You do not get to say, we're independent and we're taking out of this too. No. So, Texians defeated the Mexican garrison at Bejar, uh, and the Mexican soldiers had to retreat to a mission outside a town called the Alamo. And it looked like that, right? This is the way it looked. It didn't get that funky top to the to the arched top to the face until decades later. And it didn't have stores across the street. Strangely, it didn't. Yeah. Nowadays, the Alamo is in the middle of San Antonio. And it's so weird. So we went to go see the Alamo when we visited Gwen after basic training, and it was weird to see the Alamo and then skyscrapers. Yep. And stores across the street. Well, it's got a lot of cheesy gift shops, and right across the street is the Ripley's, believe it or not, yes. auditorium. So I mean, it's. It's kind of like, oh, let's go to McDonald's and walk across the street to the Alamo, which is tiny. So it's just weird. Everybody, when you think of the Alamo, you always picture this thing out in the middle of, of, of nowhere. And they actually still have one of those because they kept the Alamo set from the movies. And, and, and you can go sit that as if it were the Alamo. Except it's got the arch top because no movie cares. Anyway, a month after that, a skeleton force of 200 Texians were sent to destroy the Alamo. Because you, the one thing you didn't want was for the Mexicans to get a hold of it and, and use it as a fort. So they were sent to destroy the Alamo, and then they were laid siege to by Santana's 1,800 troops. At which point they had to defend the very thing that they were originally intended to destroy. Which is bizarre when you think about it. Not only did, did, does it, is, you know, like, I think we're going to lose, but every day you're like, man, we should have just blown it up. Why didn't we just blow it up like we're supposed to? But if they had blown it up, there wouldn't be anything for them to take refuge in when the other... They wouldn't have been there. They wouldn't have had to take refuge. Almost every Texan in the Alamo was killed, including William Travis, Davy Crockett, Jim Bowie. Nasty, you know the story of the Alamo. So I assumed that the, the massacre of the Alamo and Goliath uh, would squelch the spirit. He's like, this, this will destroy the Texans. This, they'll stop. If we just bomb Pearl Harbor, you know, America's heart won't be in the war anymore. Obviously, the, the opposite happened. The revolutionaries were galvanized, they rallied, they fought at San Jacinto that, uh, later on in April, and just kicked Santa Ana's booty. Huge, crucial victory. It was one massive win. It's over. I mean, they, they won a couple of different things, but San Jacinto pretty much made it over. Texas became its own republic with its own flag. That's the Texas flag, right? That's not the Texas flag. Yes, it was the Texas flag for like three years, and then eventually it became this. But the Texas flag was, was blue with the, with the yellow star. Oh, 1845. Pardon me? I said, are we to six flags yet? Do we have to get the six Texas flags, right? Yeah, we're not coming. I don't, you keep track for me, will you? Okay. <laughs> so it's two 
if you want to include the 1824. Um, 1845, Southern Baptists are formed. Uh, up to this point, there haven't been Southern Baptists. There have just been Baptists floating around. The Baptists had always been, at least traditionally, like the most historically, the most racially diverse group in the United States. Um, Guilford Baptist was the largest church in its area. It's founded in 1788 specifically as a racially integrated congregation. And it was traditionally pastored by black ministers. So you'd have white and black people together in, in, in church, pastored by a black pastor. That's because the Baptists are doing all this stuff, and everybody's Baptists are odd, but they they just they're very colorblind with things, as they should be. Until Nat Turner's Rebellion in Virginia. You ever heard of Nat Turner's Rebellion? Uh, Nat Turner's Rebellion. Um, oh gosh, I'm trying to remember. I think it was something like something around 50, 50 people that uh, that Nat Turner and, and, and his slave revolt had killed, and then in backlash, the, uh, the the whites killed something like two hundred slaves. It just it was this big, ugly, scary mess for, for for people, and they they decided in Virginia that they needed new laws to protect themselves from this sort of thing in the future. So. They made it illegal for people of color to preach. They made it illegal for them to worship without a white man present. They made it illegal for them to meet at night. Undermined everything that had come before. Nasty, nasty, nasty moment in history. Southern preachers, this is where it gets weird, defended their rights to own slaves, even if they're preaching in racially diverse, racially integrated congregations. So if I'm a white preacher and I'm preaching to my white brothers and my black brothers, I'm still owning my brothers. And, 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 and as a pastor, I can't, I honestly can't picture how you would do that. I can't picture how you would, you, you, could, you could be up there and be preaching while treating other human beings like cattle. I can't, anyway. But, they're like, no, no, this is the way, this is totally fine. And, and a lot of the Baptist ministers because the Baptist Church had been very racially integrated, a lot of them were like, you can't, you can't do that. But it was particularly the northern pastors in the Baptists, looking at the southern Baptist pastors going, how do you, how do, you do that? How do you, preach, how do you preach Joseph was in slavery and that's a bad thing, they shouldn't have sold him into slavery. How do you, how do you, how do you preach through Philemon while holding slaves? How do, you, how do you do that? And so, though it wasn't an official above and below that line that Henry Clay drew. But in, in point of practice, it was. You know, it's like, if you're in the South, you say this makes total sense. If you're not in the South, it doesn't make sense to you at all. At the triennial meeting, because every three years the Baptist congregations would meet, in the triennial meeting, the Southern Baptist uh, made a test case out of proposing slave owner James Reeves to be ordained as a missionary. Right, we're going to see if the Baptist Home Missionary Society will, will support this. In fact, it wasn't just that he was a missionary, that he was a slave owner. They made a point of the fact that he was a slave owner. They specifically mentioned in his application that he was a slave owner, and they specifically said, this is why we are recommending him, because he's a slave owner. They argued that appointing Reeve, quote, will stop the mouths of gainsayers. There are good brethren among us who, notwithstanding the transactions of our society in Philadelphia, are hard to believe that you will appoint a slaveholder as a missionary even when the funds are supplied by those who wish such an appointment. There are people that seem to think that you wouldn't do that, and we know that you would do it. We know that you'd have no problems with this, because we're paying for it, we're going to give money so they can be a missionary. Surely, the fact
fact that he is a slaveholder should not affect us. And we know that if we specifically highlight on his application, yes, he owns slaves, that won't change anything. Surely. The Home Mission Society denied the application, going, wait, we've been neutral on this. The only way that we've been one big happy church is being neutral on this. We don't talk about this. We've been neutral on this, and we're going to remain neutral on the subject. We're not taking sides. And you, by highlighting all this, are forcing us to take a side, and we're not doing it. Right? All southern churches, all southern churches just went bananas. Like, how dare they? University of Alabama president, Basil Manley, um, drafted up a series of resolutions to express the Southern Church's outrage. So how dare you do that? How dare you say that just because he's a slaveholder, he's not qualified to hold office? Yeah. Actually, that's, that's not what they were saying. They, they weren't saying that at all. They were saying, actually, we, we really didn't want to take that into consideration one way or the other. You, you're forcing us to look at it, but, but that's not where we're going. He's like, ah, you're saying that if we own slaves, we're not qualified. Um, no, 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 that's not what we're saying. The resolutions failed to pass, and the southern churches got so frustrated. 1845, a Virginia pastor named James B. Taylor wrote an article for the Virginia Religious Herald arguing the decision of the Home Mission Society was unconstitutional because the constitution of the Baptist churches, the constitution of the Home Mission Society, said that they would remain neutral, and they're not. They would not take sides, and here they are denying somebody because he's a slave owner. Okay. The logic prophet needs to take this. Um, no, it's the opposite of that. You, you understand that, right? They're, they deny it because they're trying to remain neutral. Nah, it doesn't matter. Once you get somebody dandered up, you know, it doesn't matter what you say. You know, they, they, they hear what they're expecting to hear. And so, no, this is horrible. And he says, all Southern Baptist churches, all Southern Baptist churches, because there is no Southern Baptist yet, all Southern Baptist churches should withdraw your allegiance, withdraw all your funds from the General Baptist Conference, and we should create our own Southern Baptist Conference, where we can be us without having to deal with them. This is the logo of the Southern Baptist Conference. Amazingly, a lot of African American churches <laughs> didn't want to join this new conference. Go figure! Which is why all of a sudden you have this explosion of new African-American conferences in the South. And independent Baptist churches in the South and things. There are people going, I don't want to do that. Maybe more amazingly, a lot of African-American churches did want to join. There were a ton of African-American churches that did join the new, the new conference. Why? I mean, I don't know, protection, and I don't, I don't know, I'm concerned to see how it might have, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm sure. Is that assuming that the congregation decided, or that the leaders decided? That's a good point. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Um, in most of these, it would be congregational vote, so at least at some level, the congregation decided. But it might have been pushed by the leaders. But there was one specific thing that, that came up over and over again with a lot of these churches. Because their loyalty to their region superseded the disdain for slavery. Oh, I don't like slavery, but I'm from the South. Remember um, 20 years later? Yeah, I was going to say, uh, 15 years later, 
who was who was handpicked to be the the, uh, the commander of the Union forces in the Civil War? Robert E. Lee, who genuinely considered it because he didn't necessarily support slavery as such, <laughs> but he decided to be the commander of the Confederate forces. Why? Yeah, because he said, I cannot fight against Virginia. And first and foremost, I'm a Virginian. When I think of what it means to be patriotic, my first thought is patriotic to Virginia. Because again, I go back to what I was saying, it's these United States. Anyway, now the fact that the Southern Baptists tended to hold a more religiously uh, conservative take than a lot of other Baptists. Um, a lot of Bible-believing churches have spent the last 150 years trying to figure out what to do with the Southern Baptists, because it's a little bit complicated. On one hand, they're extremely strong Bible-believing conservatives, champions, holding them swervingly to the truths of Scripture, yada, 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 right? Very, very conservative, which is why it was the Southern Baptists that created the Institute for Creation Research back in 1970, right? Opening or championing the, 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 the science behind creationism. We need to really talk about creationism and show why this is not just biblical, but sciencely. And then that spun off into Answers in Genesis in 1994. So that Ken Ham could debate Bill Nye the Science Guy in 2014. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but it's a hoot. So, um, so, so this is one point of Southern Baptism. But even that, I should say, Amazing how many people don't realize this um, is because trouble was brewing within the Southern Baptists starting in the 1960s, where there was a strong liberal element that that kicked in the Southern Baptist movement, and all of a sudden, with, they didn't realize it as it was coming. But all of a sudden, they started publishing like uh, the the Broadman commentary. I don't know if you're familiar with that. It's kind of a famous Bible commentary that came out in '69. Um, a lot of their leadership was extremely liberal. All of a sudden, they looked and they went, "How did we?" How do we do this? We've got liberal props in our seminaries. Our, our, our church leadership is liberal. We're publishing liberal commentaries. We're like the conservatives. We're the Southern Baptists. How are we doing this? And so from the 1970s to the 1990s, there was a war within the Southern Baptist church. They, they, it was nasty. I mean, really ugly. Character assassination. Uh, changed the locks on president's office weird sort of mass firing sort of fight between the liberals and the conservatives in, in the Southern Baptist Church to try to decide who is actually going to run this thing. Spoiler alert, the, the conservatives won. So, yeah, just in case you're wondering about that. Um, but for a while there, it really was touch and go. They had no idea which way they were going to move for, as, a, as a denomination. And so... Um, yeah, there was there was one in, in particular. One th they they ousted the president and immediately changed the locks on his door that day. So that sort of thing. Anyway, on the other hand, the whole reason the Southern Baptists exist in the first place because they were they, they liked slavery. So so you're a good Bible believing Christian. Are the Southern Baptists your buddies because they're good Bible believing Christians? Or every time you think of the Southern Baptists, you go. Yeah, but these guys existed because they wanted to support slavery. And so it, 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 it's like, what do you do with these guys? And so it's been complicated. <laughs> On the plus side, 
The one benefit of all that infighting, of all that uh, that massive attacking of one another all over the place, was that they had to sit back and figure out what exactly does it mean to be Southern Baptist? Is, is Southern Baptist just regional? Does Southern Baptist mean devotion to scripture? Does Southern Baptist mean openness to new ideas? What exactly does it mean? And both sides came to the conclusion it doesn't mean we like slavery, which is good. You know, we, we all go, good, that's good, that's good. So, 1995, on the 150th anniversary of the founding of the Southern Baptist Church because of their position on slavery, they officially apologized for the whole slavery thing. Like, yeah, sorry. That's not probably what we should do. 134 years after Lincoln freed the slaves, good 30 years more after the beginning of the Civil Rights Movement, Southern Baptists finally said, by the way, I don't think we've ever said this, but we actually think slavery is wrong now. Oh, thank you. Thank you for, thank you for joining the late 20th century. <laughs> Same year, the United States annexed Texas. Because, why not? I mean, it's full of American citizens, right? There's a whole bunch of, a whole bunch of Americans floating around there. Anyway, it's got millions of acres of land and good stuff there. It's one step forward to fulfilling our God-given destiny to stretch across the whole continent. Right? So this is good, sure. Poor guys are out there just being Texas Republic. Oh, that's no fun. Did they ask the Texans before? Yeah, yeah. They did. The Texans feel fun. They did. The Texans decided they like this. Bear in mind the, the exact borders of Texas are still under dispute, right? Because the Mexicans grudgingly say, you're the lime. Um, and the Texans go, no, we're all of this. Put Texas all the way up to Alaska. You know, it's like, no, you're not. 1845, United States annexed Texas into the Union as a, as a state. And I should say, it kind of became a hot-button issue because of the whole slavery thing. Because remember, there's a line being drawn across the United States. And everything coming in south of that line is a slave state. Everything coming in north of that line is not a slave state. You can't and have more slave states than non-slave states. Exactly. I mean, they, in fact, they purposely would say, we'll let this one come to the Union if you let this one come to the Union. Both sides constantly making sure that they have a balance with this. Because of Henry Clay, everybody is now constantly thinking, slave state or free state, slave state or free state. No, you Maine can't become a state. Okay, no. If, if Missouri comes in as a slave state, Maine can be a free state. You know, just everything is now seen in like to the hammer, everything becomes a nail, right? Okay. Two-thirds of what Texians call Texas is under the line. One-third is above the line. So which is it? Um, so, uh, oh, I was going to say, the, the British are actually offering a stipend saying, if you remain independent and don't hold slaves, we'll give you money every year. We will actually support you every year that you remain. A, we don't like the United States. B, we don't like slavery. So it's worth it to us to be your buddies and give you money. Um, outgoing Southerner President John Tyler is making secret deals with, with Texas on the sly, interacting with them, trying to get them to come in as a slave state before uh, the incoming northerner president, James Polk, can bring them in as a, as a free state. So everybody's angling to try to get Texas to be what they want it to be. Because they don't, they don't know Texas. They say it that way. Polk won the election, but Tyler won about the annexation of Texas. Um, the boundaries are mostly below the line. 
And so um, they came into the Union as a slave state, mostly. Because this eastern part that actually had people living in it, that became a slave state. But this unincorporated, Mexico doesn't even say it's actually a part of Texas part, that's still unincorporated, so it, 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 it could go either way. Theoretically, that could come in as another state and be a free state. That was kind of the compromise that was used. But again, what exactly constitutes Texas? We're still asking that question. Yeah. But if you, are, if you are saying we're annexing Texas, we're bringing in, what is it? Was it the line? Was it the Mexican state that Mexico thinks Texas is? Or was it that whole area that the Texans seem to think that it is? Polk says, tell you what, we'll buy it. Let's just, let's just stop the controversy. Mexico, <laughs> here's, a, here's a fair price for the land. All that unincorporated area, we'll just buy it from you. That way, you don't have anybody living on that land anyway. And everybody goes home happy. We get more land, Texas gets what they think are Texas, and you get a ton of money. Mexicans refused, so the government did what the United States government has often done in history. Send in the troops! Send in the troops! They sent the army to occupy everything that they think of as Texas. Start, and they tried to buy it first. And that precipitated the Mexican-American War. How many of you have heard the Mexican-American War? Good. Okay. Mexican-American War breaks out. Nasty, nasty fun. 80 American soldiers. When they say occupy the land, it's not a lot of occupation. I mean, it's just, it was more of a token occupation. Kind of like the token Oregon is ours. You remember that? We're going to go sail, we're going to plant the flag, tell everybody, hi, we are in Oregon, and then sail away, and everybody goes, what just happened? They have 80 American soldiers wandering around the unincorporated, unpopulated part of West Texas. But they, but they were attacked by 2,000 soldiers of the Mexican Army. And, yeah, who didn't appreciate them being there. 11 men were killed, 49 are captured, and the Americas go nuts. But they hear about this horrible massacre where there were 2,000. It's just like another Alamo. Yeah. Got away. So, um, uh, oh yeah, Max Massacre. Why? This is another Alamo. The Mexican. They are horrible as Mexicans. All we did was sit on our Texas. Again, I don't know if you're familiar. I don't know if you can possibly picture a world like this. But back in 1846, people tended to make their political decisions based on sound bites. No, no, it's weird. People only had a slight understanding of politics. They only knew bits and pieces of things. They blogged it. They did. It's like a little blog. They blocked it, and everybody just went, yeah, did I fully understand the political situation? And, yeah. So up against Mexico, Polk summed it up to Congress and said, the cup of forbearance has been exhausted even before the recent information from the frontier of the Rio Grande. But now, after reiterated menaces, Mexico has passed the boundary of the United States and has invaded our territory, shed American blood upon American soil. She has proclaimed that hostilities have commenced and that the two nations are now at war. She declared war on us. Sort of. <laughs> a young lieutenant stationed over there uh, named Ulysses S. Grant, who served with Zachary Taylor's invasion force, opposed the war. And he said, you know what? We were sent to provoke a fight. 
why we were there. But it was essential that Mexico should commence it. They had to shoot first. We picked a fight, but they shot first. It's very doubtful whether Congress would declare war, but if Mexico should attack our troops, the executive, the president, could then prosecute the contest with vigor. So the 80 <laughs> That's exactly what they were. They, they were there to kick the bully in the shins. And then the bully fights back and you go, What? Now granted, Mexico did. Uh, Mexico made some bad decisions here. We go, yeah, we, we poked them in the side until they did. Others opposed the war too. A bunch of radical young leaders came up in politics and, and they actually gained political posts in large part by arguing against the Mexican-American War. It was the Vietnam of its age. And so there were a whole bunch of radical social radicals that they're saying the, the war is bad, it's an illegal war, it's just us rattling our sabers. So people like Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln came to power arguing against the Mexican-American War. So I want you to picture these guys as anti-Vietnam radicals in the, in the 60s, because that's pretty much what they, what they would have been in the 1840s. Others enthusiastically supported the war including a, a, a journalist named John O'Sullivan who said, you know, we have a solid claim on Texas, we have a solid claim on Oregon, and that claim is by the right of our manifest destiny, that's where that term was coined, to overspread and to possess the whole of the continent which the province has given us so we can continue this experiment in democracy and republicanism. So we have a, a clear and manifest destiny to, uh, to own the whole continent. Mexican-American was kind of important. It's 1846, by the way, that yes, we specifically finally did nail things down with Great Britain about Oregon, and Oregon officially became part of the Union. So it's the same time we took Oregon and the rest of it. And also, that it only lasted like a little less than, than two years, but it was really important, the Mexican-American War. First off, it made even bigger names of people uh, that had been heroes back in the Black Hawk War, we talked about the other week, like Winfield Scott, and Zachary Taylor, and Matthew Perry. Anybody know who Matthew Perry is? Commodore Matthew Perry ends up going to, to Japan with big guns saying, you will trade with us. I will sit in the, in the harbor with big guns pointing at you until you trade with us. Because we love Japan. So, yeah. Open up. I, I love, we'll have fun in 1853. We'll, we'll have some fun with this. Because this is one of these moments of political diplomacy where you go, you know, we want fair trade. No fair trade. No fair trade. No fair trade. Fair trade. Would you like to buy a commodity? <laughs> <laughs> also, John C. Fremont. Anybody familiar with the name Fremont? Dish. Okay. I don't know. I don't know. There's actually a lot of Fremonts in the United States named after him, so. But he'd later be sent westward to scout and explore, unquote. Like, go take it. But scout and explore the California territories of the Bear Flag Republic. Because. When Texas revolted, there were other Mexican states that went, wait, we can do that? So um, one of those was called Alta California, Old California. Ever watch Zorro movies and he talks about being in Old California? Because that, that isn't just a descriptor, that's the name of the, the, the state, is Alta California. And so it also declares its independence. So that is California, the ship of California. And it formed itself into the Bear Flag Republic. We are, we are us. We are our own state now. But there's like 12 guys with guns there. I mean, this, 
not a lot of not a lot of militia. So within a month of the forming of the Bear Flag Republic, Fremont recommends folding their militia forces in with his army force that he's brought over there to scout and explore. He's like, you know, if we do that, we triple the size of your fighting force. <coughs> Tacitly, it also puts it on the command of the American army, right? The American government. Anyway, with the help of Fremont's troop and his support personnel like Scout Kit Carson, you ever hear of Kit Carson? Yeah, that was John C. Fremont Scout, uh, who was famous today because of the dime novels. Back then, for a, for a dime, you could get like the worst written novel ever. And it's very exciting. There's all sorts of sex and violence and everything you'd see on the CW. And that is in novel form and for 10 cents. Anyway, California Republic gets its independence pretty quickly against the Mexicans. Once it's made into its own state, it quickly becomes annexed into, into the Union again. Because we're like, why not? Manifest Destiny. Texas, Oregon, California, all of a sudden it's like really big, making the non-sale of Texas one of the worst real estate decisions in history, right? Instead of getting a lot of money for selling unpopulated territory, Mexico lost the entire southwest of the United States. I I'm not saying it's all on Mexico, I'm just saying afterwards I'm pretty sure the Mexicans went, well, if I had that to do over again, I think I would have done that differently. Wait, we're gonna sold this? Yeah, yeah. Anyway, John C. Fremont took over as governor of California, even though he hadn't been named governor of California. United States had actually named Stephen Kearney as governor of California. Fremont was on a roll. So was Fremont enthusiastic? Was Fremont trying to carve his own little Fremont land? What exactly was he doing? We'll never know because he didn't get far enough into it because he got arrested and brought up on charges for exceeding authority and marched back to Kansas to Fort Leavenworth on charges. It's like, nope, 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 whatever you're doing, it stops now. You don't get to keep doing it. <laughs> By the way, on the march back to Fort Leavenworth is where they marched past through Donner Pass and found all the remains of the Donner Party. So again, that is John C. Fremont finding that. For those of you who are not familiar with that, that is a party who... Uh, according to uh, to reports, had reverted to cannibalism because the conditions had gotten so harsh. Interestingly, though, there is absolutely no physical evidence of that. There is no physical evidence that there was any cannibalism at Donner Pass. The only evidence we have uh, is the eyewitness reports of a girl who was a toddler at the time, who herself was influenced by the report of a 16-year-old who gave an, uh, an interview for a dime novel where he went into all the lurid details Years later, he came back and said, I was 16 and I was looking for attention. None of that ever happened. But of course, by then, it's in print. And the toddler goes, yeah, no, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I remember that. That's what happened. So, was there cannibalism there? I have no idea. We'll, we'll probably never know. Maybe, maybe. But it has become indelible in American psyche that this is, oh, this is the worst example. This is classic cannibalism. You go, we're not. <laughs> But it made, it made it into dime novels, so it must be. It's on the internet. It must be true. <laughs> At Leavenworth, though, Fremont is cleared of all charges because they went, hey, you got us California, fine. Eventually becomes a senator. Eventually becomes a presidential hopeful. Eventually becomes an important general in the Civil War. In part, my favorite part in the Civil War is because he gave command 
to Brigadier General Ulysses S. Grant. Crucial command that, that halted a, a Confederate advance and brought Grant to the attention of all the Union leaders. So if nothing else, you look at Fremont and go, thank you for giving Grant the chance, because Grant then won the war. So, booyah. Well, Sherman also. So. All right, anyway, speaking of wars, this is also a, a time where the U.S. Marines comported themselves rather well uh, down and because they, I mean, still, they're still relatively new. They've only been around for like, you know, a couple of decades, like two decades, so three, or I guess four. But so they, but they, they uh, a generation. And they did really well, especially at the Battle of uh, Chapultepec. Chapultepec. Now I said it right the first time. Uh, castle in Mexico City, which is why you add the Marine hymn. You add the, the line from the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli. Because remember, we talked about the shores of Tripoli before. And now there's this. I assume because from the shores of Tripoli to the halls of Montezuma didn't have quite the ring, so you have to flip those. But anyway. That's the origin of that. Okay, 1848. Yes. So that battle went all the way down to Mexico City. Oh yeah. Well, and, and, okay, and that's man. Yes, but um, that actually becomes something that is referred to in the Civil War as the war with Mexico was dragging on until we took it down into Mexico and started hurting them in their own capitals. At which point they went, oh, it's not worth it. Take it. So Sherman starts, and, and Grant starts saying things. And where do you think Grant learned this, since he's serving in the Mexican-American War? But Grant's like, you know, we can fight them, and we can fight the Southerners in Pennsylvania all we want, and they'll fight us in Pennsylvania forever. They'll fight us in, 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 in northern, which is why Lee kept taking it up to the north. What we need to do is take it down to the south. Tell you what, I will hold Lee in the north. I will fight him on the, on the field. I, I, will, I will keep that going. Sherman, burn the south. That's what we learned from the Mexican-American War. You take it to where they live. Sherman, go destroy it. And Lee's like, crud, somebody already figured this out now. What I've been trying to do, where I'm taking it to the north so that they'll stop fighting us, Grant finally figured this out. And while we're up here fighting, every day that we're fighting, Sherman is burning more plantations. I think, guys, they called our bluff. We're done. But arguably, they learned that from the Mexican-American War. It's a good question. Okay, 1848, Pope Pius. He's got a great idea for healing the Great Schism. You remember the Great Schism, right? Between the, the East and West. East Orthodox Church, Roman Catholic Church have excommunicated each other since 1054. We hate you because you're not us. Since 1054, back when Pope Leo IX demanded that all clergymen be celibate and demanded that everyone, on pain of death, agree that the communion elements change into something funky when the priest blesses them. They physically change into the blood and body of Jesus Christ. Everybody knows that. And if you don't believe that, we will kill you. That the Normans have to leave Italy. Yes, we asked the Normans to come to Italy, but now we're asking them to leave. In fact, we asked them to come to Italy to support us against Constantinople. And now we want them to leave, so I'm going to call Constantinople. And I'm going to say, you, I'd like you to help us. And to tell you that you should help us, let me remind you of the donation of Constantine, which, if you'll recall, was a Total forgery. The, the donation of Constantine gave the Pope complete and unquestionable control over all bishops everywhere, and that includes Constantinople. So when I say we'd like your help against the Normans, what I'm saying is, is you will help us against the Normans because I'm in charge of you. Clearly. Right? And both sides have communicated each other in the middle of church services. Nasty, ugly church split. Well, Pope Pius says, no, I got this right. 
He writes the epistle to the Easterners. He's like, I'm going to write a letter to the East, and I'm going to say, let's bring our churches back together. All you need to do is accept our authority and our theology. <laughs> if you agree that the church in Rome is the church of everything, and that we're right about everything, we will embrace you wayward brothers. Hold me. <laughs> Strangely, all the patriarchs, these went, are you nuts? And they write uh, their encyclical to the Eastern, uh, of the Eastern patriarchs saying, um, no, our only problems, and maybe you guys can work on this, is that whole papal supremacy thing that you're in charge of everything, um, that unilateral changing of the Nicene Creed, could you change it back to the way we all agreed it should be originally? And uh, the fact that you keep evangelizing Eastern Orthodox Christians and making them become Catholics. Could you stop all that? And Pius goes, I don't understand why they are so negative. Why won't they just be part of Rome? They're so harsh. Seriously, it was just almost like, I don't, I don't get it. Why won't they? Why, why would they be so rebellious? Well, it's, it, it's been 800 years. I don't think they see themselves as being rebellious, really, anymore. It's also the same year that he created a new constitution for the Papal States. Remember, the Pope is in charge of the Papal States. He is both the Pope, the leader of the Church, and he's the King of the Papal States. He is both. He is the unquestionable spiritual and secular leader of that entire area. Um, and so he decided that the government should reflect that, and so he created a two-chambered parliament. One chamber is comprised of spiritual leaders chosen by the Pope for life. They are going to be there forever, and uh, the other side is 100 elected delegates. So all the decisions are made by Parliament, just the way Congress makes decisions, and then they're going to be passed by the College of Cardinals to make sure that they're okay. And then the College of Cardinals will pass by the Pope, who makes the final judgment. That way, everybody knows that they've had adequate representation. Yeah. We got... We got half a parliament that then goes by other cardinals that then goes by the Pope before it gets passed? Yeah. I'm not, not sure that really means Republicanism, does it? Oh, yeah, yeah, sure it does. What's your problem? Pope, did, Pope Pius did a lot of... What? Um, he's, he's also the guy that later called the first Vatican Council in 1869. You've heard of Vatican II? This is Vatican I. And among the other things they were talking about, including what all the things the Eastern Orthodox people have to do for us to love them again, address the new doctrine of papal infallibility, which is what? Yep. He is clearly unquestioned and unquestionable representative of God on earth. So therefore, anytime he speaks from that authority, he cannot be wrong. He cannot be wrong. So anytime he sits on the papal throne, and expresses a judgment as if he were coming from God, you cannot question it. It is, it is absolute truth. Clearly. That's Pope Pius. Why wouldn't anybody like that? Of course everybody agrees with that. Okay, after a while, the other kings in the Italian peninsula are getting sick of it. Uh, king Vittorio of, of Sardinia is like, you know what? Enough. We just, I just don't buy it. Uh, he'd been fighting a series of wars for the independence of the Italian peninsula since 1860. He'd been fighting the papal armies. The Pope himself led the papal armies. So this is, again, he's Pope and King. So he's leading armies into the battlefield. So in 1870, Vittorio's forces invaded Rome, dissolved the papal states forever. Like, there are no more papal states. There's just one Italy. For the first time in history, there's a Italy. It's 
the way we're, we're viewing it. We are a, our own independent nation. You're allowed to retreat within your Vatican palace, but only so long as you never exercise secular temporal power again. You never get to be king again. You want to be church leader? Fine. Knock yourself out. I'll even give you money every year to handle it. But you don't get to lead a country. And Pius referred to himself as the prisoner of the Vatican. I can't leave my own Vatican. I'm stuck here. And all I can do, all I can do now, is run the church. 1848 is also the same year that the Oneida Society was founded. Oh, somebody's heard of the Oneida Society. Isn't it silverware? Just you wait. They're a utopian society. This is good. John Humphrey Noyes uh, studied at Dartmouth and Yale to become a minister. He's all about God. Enamored with the fad that everybody's enamored with at this time of trying to figure out when Jesus is coming back. Because remember, there's been a number of different spin-offs that have come from that. He figured out, wait, Jesus clearly came back in, 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 uh, in 70 AD. Duh! How did people miss that? So, we must already be living in the millennium. We must be living in this time where God is, is, is processing us so that we become more and more holy. We, we're perfected in our faith with God. If God came back in 70 AD to fix everything, surely we're fixed. Getting fixed. So that means that a human being can be perfect in their faith. You can get to the point where you're living without sin. Right? Totally. Read Romans. Is that theoretically possible? Aren't we held morally accountable that we don't? Yes. So surely we can live without sin. Since God is already working to improve mankind, then we need to be freed from all that traditionalist morality that holds us back from this. We need to let God, God is already working in our hearts, so we need to follow our hearts. Follow the impulses of our hearts. Because those impulses, by definition, must be good. Right? If God is working in people, if God is working in your heart, then you should be able to follow your heart and thus honor God. Because God will honor that and work in you, right? Surely that works. So Noah began studiously following his own intuition, giving free reign to his own heart. Whatever God lays on my heart, that's what I'll do. Strangely, that means having a lot of sex with whoever he wants. Have you noticed that, by the way? Have you noticed that almost invariably when you get a cult, they're like, by the way, part of this cult is I get to have sex with really young girls. It's like, yep. That's everybody gets to do that when they start realizing that God speaks specifically to them. Pretty soon, everybody around him and his wife are like, could you move? Because you're weird, and we're kind of creeped out by you, and you keep, you know, like, vulturing on our daughters. And say, could you please go away? So they had to go somewhere where they could grow and just be with God, to leave their, their towns. Where would, you, where would you go at this point in history if you wanted to go to some place where you could just think all sorts of wacky Christian thoughts? You No, that's being used. We go to New York! Right? We've talked about this, man. They go to Oneida in New York. This is the burnout district, that area of the country where you can just believe whatever you want. Focus on all sorts of wonderful things where you live out the utopian society. Everything done in the community is good for the done for the good of the community. You plant your own crops, you make your own silverware, you're doing your own leather working, all that kind of stuff. Everything that you need to do to keep the community going. Including having sex with as many different people as you can. You can't tell somebody they shouldn't be able to have sex. That horrible traditional morality of monogamy that keeps everybody down, that's bad. 
I'm not overstating it. I mean, seriously. They even had a term for it. They called it free love, which kind of became a thing in the 19th century. H.G. Wells wrote a treatise on free love and thought he was just being edgy. So yeah, everybody should be having some. They were. <laughs> Do you remember when I started the whole thing in the Victorian era going, you realize they were not prudent. Anyway, to breed the best, strongest stock for future community, because everything's for the good of the community. This isn't like in the 60s where it's like, everybody have sex because it feels good. It's, no, no. It's good for the community. Cross-pollination of genes and stuff. Yeah, this is good. They started like genetically deciding you two would make a strong child, you two would make a smart child. In addition, older women, you should be tutoring the young boys in how to have sex. You can't, you can't, you're not a breeder anymore, but you can, you can have sex with the young boys, and older men, like boys, can have sex with the young girls and show them how this works. Right? This is, this is utopian. Once the children are born, they're taken away to a, speci a special part of the community to be raised by the, the, the workers in, uh, in, in, in the nursery, taken away from their parents and, and to be raised by the community at large. In fact, if the child's biological parents too, take too much of an interest in the child and think that they're theirs, this is my child? Well, that's an aberration. And we need, to, we need to correct them in a public shaming ritual where we say, you are stealing your children away from the rest of the community. They aren't your children. They're the community's children. How dare you do that? In fact, you could have, you could have a publicly shame-festy thing for having sex with too few partners or for using words like family or parent in their biological sense or in their traditionally moral sense because those things are Things are bad. That's immoral for you to be talking like that. Utopia. If any of this sounds familiar, maybe you've read Brave New World. Yeah. You read Brave New World, you go, what a ridiculous society that all this actually makes. And you go, based almost entirely on the Oneida Society. Because people would get in trouble for not having sex with enough people. You really need to be having more sex. Okay. They got in trouble for using words like mom and dad and stuff like that. Or maybe you've read Frank Herbert's Hellstrom's Hive, which is like the scariest book I've ever read in my life, about a dystopian society that treats everybody like human insects. Everybody's got their role. You're bred for a specific sort of thing. Or maybe you've watched movies like Logan's Run that, again, are like, you need to have sex, you need to have pleasure. A key point in the movie is that they have no idea what the words mother and father mean. So it's like, to remove all of that is to create a utopia. And you go, no, actually, it's not. 1879, Noise had to slip away from the community to, to avoid a warrant on statutory rape charges. Go <laughs> figure. Um, and everything started to dissolve without him being there. He just kind of, kind of just went out west somewhere and wrote a letter saying, you guys might want to rethink that whole free love thing. And that's the end of Noise. That's pretty much the end of the community. Everybody else, uh, on that, and the fact that the new generation goes, kind of like the idea of getting married. Kind of like the idea of having a family. Christmas is really weird otherwise, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, so I decided to create just a joint stock company to make silverware, which is why United Limited, which it comes out of that society, is the largest supplier of dinnerware to the food service industry in North America. So, so the, yeah, the next time you open up a box that says United Silverware, just go. Sure that if you went and talked to them, they'd go, you don't believe in free love, let the children go. go. Well, well, maybe they were more staunch proponents of marriage and family after yeah. coming out of that. That's true. Awful. 
great new world. Forks. Anyway, so. <laughs> Same year, the American Spiritualist Movement started up. Yeah. <laughs> Wacky fun. Um, do you remember we talked about Emanuel Swedenborg when we were talking about um, Johnny Appleseed? Emanuel Swedenborg led his new church into this radical Unitarianism. There's only one. There's no trinity. But also mysticism. He loved the mystical. And he claimed to be able to speak to God and the spirits and things in, in, in transcendental sorts of ways. I can talk to the other side. Um, and that's always something that people like. Anytime you go, juicy bits, ooh, I'm excited about that. Uh, especially if Swedenborg can talk to my dead relatives. That, that would be really cool. I'd really love it if he could do that. About the same time in history, a guy named Franz Mesmer uh, believed that disease and suffering could be treated by um, placing people into trances and manipulating their animal magnetism. So you'd place them into a trance and you'd put these big magnets around them, and all their disease and suffering would just, just come out of their body. Because that's the way, Calvin. That's the way disease works, isn't it? <laughs> Do that all the time. <laughs> Obviously, this is goofy. You know, that's utterly goofy. But mesmerism, or they call it hypnotism, the idea of putting people in trances. People are like, you know, that actually works. That part of your theory actually works, and it's kind of fun to watch. So it became kind of a parlor game kind of thing. It's really all the rage. Put those together. And you got the spiritualist movement that says, you know, you can put people in the trances so that they can communicate to the other side. Using versions of Mesmer's techniques, we can approximate Swedenborg's ability. And wouldn't that be cool? Right? Very quickly, seances, which is French for sittings, uh, seances become the newest and most exciting parlor game. You can sit around and just go, oh, let's talk to Aunt Matilda. And they all go, oh. Of course, it's malarkey, right? It's total, absolute malarkey. And I don't just mean that I don't believe in spooks. I don't believe in tables rising on their own. I don't believe in mediums that can channel dead spirits. I don't believe in any of that. That's, that's malarkey, but that's not even what I'm talking about. I mean, the whole thing started off as a sham. The whole thing was a put-on. Leah, Maggie, and Kate Fox lived in New York. New York! Because of course they did. The hotbed of wackiness. <laughs> Not now, but back then. So in what local superstitions referred to as a haunted house. Everybody in, in the area thought they lived in classically haunted house. So in 1848, to have a little fun on their older sister Leia's expense, they started pretending it was. They started rigging up things to make noises upstairs. They'd be sitting down in the parlor, and they'd pull on a, on a rope and go, thump, 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 thump. Nobody's upstairs. Start telling people they saw visions of ghosts and things. They started pretending to talk to a spirit that they called Mr. Splitfoot. Uh, looked like a goat man. And Leah says, oh, I'm scared for you. And the little girls are like, we're pointing. Oh, this is so much fun. Because girls love that sort of Children love that sort of thing. Look, I'm, I'm the center of attention. Soon the whole town is talking about it. They're the center of attention of the whole town. And the girls loved that. They began putting on demonstrations for people of communicating with the spirits. Increasingly, they, every time they do it, they're like, oh, let's try a new thing. Let's try a new thing. Constantly doing new and more complicated gags to, to convince people, oh, look, there's knocking. They learned how to pop their, their knuckles so that they can make this popping sound without anybody noticing anything. Oh, yeah, all sorts of different things. Within a year, they're performing at halls in Rochester. Within another year, they're packed halls in New York City. So within two years of starting this, they have become big sensations. That's practical. 
best practical joke ever. And if these two little girls are being famous for it, you know other people are going to come out of the woodwork, right? Now, the fun thing is, years later, years later, the, the two girls go, okay, we're women now, and we're done with this, and we've been lying the whole time. Okay, here's how, here's how we did it. Seriously, it's, this is just, they're, they're, you can't go into a trance and, we made up the whole thing. But by then, the general public is like, no, it's bigger than you. We want to believe. And again, once somebody gets their dander up, once they're extremely emotive about it, no, you can't convince them otherwise, can you? No, you invented something. But I actually think it's true. You remember when we talked about uh, in, in, in Nauvoo? Joseph Smith, we think you're a crackpot. I mean, clearly your religion is true. So we'll start our own true version of it. But you're a crackpot. Like, yeah, here. People wanted to believe, so they wouldn't stop believing. One of those who thoroughly was duped was, anybody recognize this famous person? Arthur Conan Doyle, the guy who created Sherlock Holmes, great, world's greatest detective, desperate to contact his dead wife, his dead son, his dead brothers. It's like, I'm so desperate to believe that he became one of the biggest proponents of spiritualism. One of the greatest debunkers of seances was Harry Houdini, Harry Houdini who was so desperate to be able to talk to his mom that he found anybody who would fake it an abomination. He's like, no, I'll give money to anybody who can act. I'll give a ton of money. Anybody who can actually prove to me that they've done it. <laughs> well, I'm a musician, magician, so... Yeah! Ironic that the master illusionist is the one who sees through what the guy who wrote The Greatest Detective couldn't. You want to tell you one of the biggest ironies in history? Pating. They're making a show about them. Oh my gosh, they'll screw it up. No, no, it, it's, it's, it's like a fun thing where they're, like, crime solvers. Oh, well, my mistake, they won't screw it up. <laughs> it would be it's fun. Just, it would be. It's just fun. It's it is. Like, well, we, we just saw a time travel show this week where somebody went back in the old west and found a sick H.G. Wells and brought him to health, and then the boy grew up to be H.G. Wells. And I'm like, Did you even look at Wikipedia? You don't have any knowledge of anything? Anyway, 1890, Elijah Bond capitalized on this growing fad by creating something he called a Ouija board. Um, a word he claimed he received by using the Ouija board. It's ancient Egyptian, meaning good luck. And then when a toy company bought it, they went, okay, that's lame, nobody's going to buy that. Okay, no, it's the French and German words for yes. We, yeah. So, but it's all just made up. It's all just, it's totally bunk. But sales go through the roof because everybody wants to believe. Even today, people are sure that spirits are moving a little. You, you're supposed to have two people have their hands on the little thing and it pushes and, and oh, people are, oh, no, the other side is communicating with us. When it, clearly, you guys are doing it yourselves. So, invariably, it's just auto-suggestion. You, you're just faking yourself out. If you did, so, it, like, there was a show and they had people doing it, and once they blindfolded them, it, like, meant absolutely nothing. Of course, yeah. It's clearly, clearly auto-suggestion. Though technically, uh, well, and if it is auto-suggestion, uh, go back, if it is auto-suggestion, if you are just pushing this yourself and, and believing that you're talking to the spirit, then it's idiocy to do this, right? You are being stupid. It's the definition of it. The possibility does exist, though, that if you, there are spirits out there that do want to manipulate you, they can manipulate you through something like this, couldn't they? 
which would mean that playing with it is idiocy, right? Because we're told in Scripture, God doesn't work like that. And there are spirits out there that work through divination, and it's bad to do that. So this is either you faking yourself out, which is dumb, or you opening yourself to, up to demonic influence, which is dumb. Yeah, it's really, really dumb. And yet, it's still really big. 1848 is also the year that Karl Marx published the Communist Manifesto. Very big year. Now, here's the big question. Can you see why, at this point in history, when you look back at the Southern Baptists, you look back at Pope Pius, you look back at the United Society, you look back at spiritualism, can you see why Marx might believe that religion and spirituality are just being used to manipulate people and control them and create socio-cultural conditions? All it is is an opium making people feel the way they want to feel. If that's the case, then the way to respond to Marx is not to say, no, nah, Jesus loves! Because he's got a legitimate point. What you need to say is, no, no, no. They're just doing it wrong. Which is why we're in part five. You're doing it wrong, right? Snapshot in history. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you because the world is a complicated place and we can get so lost in what we want to be true. And I pray, Lord, help us to really found ourselves, to ground ourselves on what we know to be true in Scripture. God, forgive us for when we make doctrine or theology or just life decisions based solely on what we want to feel. I pray, Lord, help us to truly build our house on solid ground. Help us to love well. Help us to be the people you sculpted us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.